Thank you very much. My name is Carolyn, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I, I say that I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, although actually it's an inner ring suburb outside of St. Paul, Minnesota now. Um, when I sobered up, I lived in a tall, thin Victorian house. But I will tell you that one of the things that's going to happen to you if you come to AA and you stay in AA is that you're going to get older. <laughs> There's an important footnote to that. If you stay outside of AA, you will also get older and you may get dead. <laughs> but life continues to happen even though you sober up. And a time came when I can no longer do the stairs, so we moved to a short, wide suburban house. <laughs> I've been heavily influenced by Alcoholics Anonymous in the state of Texas, and in the state of Texas they have a saying that if you don't give your sobriety date, you probably don't have one. Man, I love that down-home style. <laughs> well, my sobriety date is the 16th of July, 1974. And I'm not going to dwell heavily on my experiences as an alcoholic. I'm going to tell you enough so that you will know that I'm qualified to stand up here. I am indeed qualified for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. But basically, my life as a drunk was boring. Um, I, I was a very sick woman. I did almost nothing. And what I did, I did poorly. Uh, you know, I, it is not true that everything I did as a practicing alcoholic was misguided or wicked or evil. It's just that everything was completely out of proportion. I mean, you are looking at somebody who tried to overdose on pills because Sears didn't deliver a bed on time. <laughs> and, you know, a long time after I got sober, I have an aunt who collapsed. She lived in Texas and she collapsed. And um, I became responsible for her well-being. And my, uh, uh, my sister said, well, uh, you know, we didn't know a thing about her finances. And my sister said, well, Carolyn, you got her Social Security. And I said, I did? When? <laughs> and she said, oh, in, um, um, in the late 1960s. I didn't remember a thing about it. So not everything I did was wicked, misdirected, or stupid. <laughs> But it was just a mess. I, my life was a mess. Um, I was born in 1933 in Amarillo, Texas. And for those of you who have the histori don't have the historical perspective or geographical perspective, that was the center of the Dust Bowl. In 1933 was the depths of the Depression. My father was unemployed when I was born. You know, my family was basically middle class, but the whole middle class had been completely displaced by the Depression. And uh, my father was an itinerant laborer, really, and my mother was living here and living there with different relatives because they did not have an income, they didn't have a home. I doubt if I was a planned baby. <laughs> um, but uh, a month after I was born, my father got a job, and it wasn't a very good job, but it put a roof over our heads and food in our mouths. And, you know, I grew up in very, very modest circumstances. Um, I grew up in an environment where I really did not, I mean, I didn't belong there. I, I didn't feel I belonged there, and other people didn't feel I belonged there either. Um, 
at, at, in that part of Texas, at that particular time, it was a terrible misfortune to be an intelligent female. And my mother used to say, now, Carolyn, you know, don't be so smart. You know, hide your brains, because smart girls don't get married. Well, you know, I did prove her wrong, actually. For a while there, I married early and often. So that part of it was wrong, but you know, I did not fit in. I didn't fit in anywhere. And when I was about 12 years old, I mean, I, I read incessantly as a child. We didn't have television, so I had books. And when I was about 12, I got a hold of the notion that probably if I came north, I would be more comfortable than I was in Texas. I didn't leave right then. I was only 12. <laughs> but as soon as I comfortably could, which was when I gained a means of supporting myself. I did leave Texas. I went to Chicago, and I went to the University of Chicago on a scholarship. And um, when I got to the University of Chicago, in some respects, I thought I had died and went to heaven. Now, I could go a whole week at a time and not, never hear the word football. It was, in, in many, in almost every respect, it was a perfect school for me. I was there because I loved learning. It was not a practical degree. I just loved the classes. I loved the prof I loved everything about my education at the University of Chicago. It was a completely useless education. Because when I got out, I went back to doing exactly the same thing that I'd been doing before, which was office work. But it was really a marvelous school experience. Now, the, tr the problem was, however, that, you know, I, I brought me with me. Um, when I was, um, like, I'd been there about two or three weeks, and I went to practice on the rifle range. I knew how to shoot a rifle, and I thought it would be fun. Well, I was apparently the only girl that had ever been near the rifle range. <laughs> and, you know, at the University of Chicago, most of the girls lived in blue jeans, but I was this really, really proper little girl. <laughs> And just out of the panhandle of Texas, and I wore skirts and stockings. <laughs> and, you know, I, when I walked in there, the whole rifle range, the whole rifle team just zeroed in on me. And, and they all started calling me and asking me for dates. And I was horrified. I was terrified. I had no social skills whatsoever. I was completely unprepared for this type of masculine attention. And I became... <laughs> I became so unnerved that I got married. <laughs> I might add that this was in 1953, 53, 1954, that I got married for the first time. Um, and um, uh, in the modern age, this would not have been a marriage. It would have been a short-term, meaningful relationship. <laughs> but in the early 50s, you got married. <laughs> And that is what I did, and that marriage didn't last any time at all. I got my degree and my divorce the same year. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I went to work in downtown Chicago. So, you know, anybody looking at me would have said, okay, here's a girl, she's got everything, she's got a little marital misadventure behind her, and, you know, she has a degree, she has a good job, she's working in the investment business. You know, it was a good job, and, um, you know, and the world is her oyster. But the only trouble was that inside I was still the same scared, misfit kid that came out of the Panhandle of Texas in the first place. And I was 26 years old. Well, no, 24 years old. And you know, you will notice that I have not 
mentioned alcohol at all because it was not a part of my life. My parents didn't drink to speak of. They had the occasional, you know, eggnog at Christmas, whatever. There was, you know, alcohol just was not a part of my immediate growing up. I had an aunt who had died at the age of 32 of alcoholism, and that was all I knew about alcoholism, which is that it was, it was a terrible thing, that it, it had really turned my aunt into a living caricature of a human being. And then she died. And I did, you know, nobody talked about it. It was, it was a buried thing. Nobody talked about it. Nobody talked about what was going on. Um, anyway, when I was 25, I met husband number two. And as I look back on it, he was already well into his alcoholism. And I soon joined him at the bar stool. I, my life began to be conducted in bars, and I was having, I just had a wonderful time. For about 18 months, I had a wonderful time. Alcohol was doing for me what I could not do for myself. You know, it made me into a person with self-confidence and poise and uh, the ability to talk to people. And you know, be, I, I felt like I was a happy person. Well, you know, it wasn't long before I began to suffer some consequences. Um, this man and I married, and um, it was not a good marriage. We didn't even drink the same kind of booze. <laughs> and it didn't really last very long. And in, um, oh, let's see, I guess I married him in, I don't know, in 63 I got divorced for the second time. And at that point, I, I really decided that having two divorces behind me made me really a candidate for some kind of counseling or something. There was something wrong with me. And so I consulted the prevailing wisdom in my environment at the time, and I was sent to a psychiatrist. And I went to a psychiatrist who was a wonderful man. He was a very kind man. He was a very gentle man. He had my best interest at heart, and he knew nothing about alcoholism. In my first interview with him, I told him that I was drinking a lot more than was good for me. And he pulled out a prescription pad and said, I am sure we can help you with that. And he wrote a prescription for Valium. And from that time until 1974, when I sobered up, there was never one day of my life that I was not intoxicated on either prescription drugs or booze or both. And, you know, when I was in early recovery and I learned about what the effect of Valium was on me, my first thought was to be really angry about this. But then I began to think, you know what, if you hadn't had that, if you hadn't had those pills, because when I got those pills, I want to tell you, it was just, it was like all of a sudden things really speeded up. It was, uh, the, the analogy that I used is that it was like I was on a merry-go-round that was going a lot too fast. And I was just having a hell of a time holding on, and I couldn't even see what was going on, what was going by. Um, in, uh, in, in that period of extreme intoxication, I acquired humber, husband number three. And he has tenure. Still have him. <laughs> um, at any rate, um, I decided, however, that anger is really not, that maybe I should be grateful rather than angry because the fact is that the, uh, the, the, the drugs speeded up my decline and fall 
so extensively. I mean, if it hadn't been for those drugs, I might have continued to drink for five or six years. I might have, you know, been able to. Um, anyway, I married husband number three, and uh, at that time, I was working at the University of Chicago. He was a professor at the University of Chicago. I could not continue to work because of anti-nepotism laws, so I quit my job, and I proposed that I was going to be the perfect faculty wife. And instead, I became a perfect full-time drunk because I had no social controls on my drinking whatsoever. Now, I, we have been married, we will be married this year, 39 years. And the first seven years of that marriage, I was drunk all the time. So we've had seven years drunk and 32 years sober, and we do agree that sober is better. At the end of my, in, in this, within this period, we moved from Chicago to the Twin Cities, and my husband says, and he gives an Al Anon talk, he says it was God that brought us here because he had never heard of a treatment center, and of course I wasn't interested in hearing of a treatment center. <laughs> at any rate, uh, we wound up here in the Twin Cities, and at the end of my drinking, I just want to tell you what my life was like. I was a periodic drinker, and my period was every four hours. I would drink for four hours, and then I'd pass out for four hours, and then the craving would be on me, and I'd wake up and repeat the process. I was not living life in the fast lane. The only creature that was close to me was a cat with behavior problems. My blood family had given up trying to interact with me at all. My mother had told me never to call her after 10 o'clock at night, and I never woke up enough to use the phone until 10 o'clock at night, so nothing going on there. Anyway, uh, you know, I, my life was, a, was an absolute shambles. I was literally dying of alcohol, uh, alcoholism. And I do say this about my condition when I came in. It, the, when I was able to recognize where I was, it removed a lot of mental clutter. There, because when I looked at the reality of my circumstances, there was no way that I could deny that I was a genuine alcoholic. Um, so anyway, I was seeing a psychiatrist. I had to keep my Valium connection, you know. And, um, and I, I, I said something which indicated that drinking might be a problem. He had never asked me about drinking. And I said something about it. Well, I volunteered some information about drinking. And he said, oh, oh well, he said, if that's all you're worried about, there's this place outside town where they can help people like you. So he gave me a little flyer for this place outside town. And so when I got home, I called him up and I made a reservation. <laughs> and my husband came home and I told him what I'd done. And, you know, by that time, as a family, we had reached the idiot stage of alcoholism. <laughs> you might imagine that he said, well, you know, can I help you pack? <laughs> Could we leave tonight? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he said, oh, I don't think that's a good idea at all. He said, you know, I've spent a lot of money on different treatments and things and odds and ends and stuff for you and psychiatrists. I said, well, nothing works. It'd just be pouring good money after bad. And when he said that, you know, in our big book, it does say that defiance is one of the characteristics of the alcoholic. <laughs> well, I defied my way right into Hazelden. <laughs> Once he told me I couldn't go, wild horses couldn't have kept me out. <laughs> And once I got there, I didn't like it very much because they were rude to me. 
But I had painted myself into a corner, you know. I told him I was going to Haven whether he liked it or not, and there was no way in hell I was going home with my tail between my legs to say, oh, honey, I made a terrible mistake. I just wasn't going to do it. So I was obliged to stay long enough to learn something, first of all, about the disease of alcoholism, because my head was sort of working in an intellectual way, and secondly, about myself. That took longer. After I'd been there about three weeks, there was this night when I was lying awake, and anybody who's been through a recovery remembers this, you know, remember your, the noisy head that you have in early recovery. Nothing is quiet ever. If there are any people in this room who are in early recovery, I'm going to give you an extra promise. It's not in the big book, and you get it at no extra charge. One of the benefits of lasting sobriety is that things do quiet down up here. <laughs> But it was as noisy as a three-ring circus inside my head that night. And, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I have, this, is, this is my story. This is all, I only have my own story. It suddenly happened, that moment of clarity that is described in the big book. I suddenly saw, and I saw it just as clearly as if it had been displayed on a big screen in front of me. I saw the reality of my condition as a practicing alcoholic. I was able to see the lies, the manipulations, the absolute ruthlessness with which I had pursued my addiction to alcohol. And in that moment of clarity and truth, I saw something else. I saw that nowhere inside this person named Carolyn was there the slightest shred of love for another human being. Alcohol had reduced me to living at the level of a sick animal. And somebody defined this for me as a spiritual experience, and I sort of accept that definition, but it was certainly not on a par with the famous Bill Wilson hot flash. I did not feel lifted up into a high mountain, and I did not feel clean winds blowing through my soul. On the contrary, I felt guilty, I felt despairing, and I felt more alone than I had ever felt before in my whole life. And this was my true bottom. And in this moment of guilt and loneliness and despair, I offered up a prayer to a God that I don't, didn't have any idea who he was or where he was, but I said, Dear God, please love me enough so that I can learn to love another human being just a little bit. That was the beginning of my recovery. When I reappeared on the unit floor the next morning, it was really obvious that something had changed. My counselor lost little time in bringing me into his office because I was just yeah, like this from the valley. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was so off the wall. And um, <laughs> you know, so he said, what's going on? I told him what's going on. He said, okay. Well, he said, you know, that's kind of good. I think you're probably ready to start working the steps. So I said, okay, let's go. So I started working the steps. That very morning, I've been working the steps ever since. You know, my, my surrender was just... I just gave up, and I was ready to follow instructions, and I've been ready to follow instructions ever since. Um, and it was a good thing I was ready to follow instructions because they had a lot of them for me. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was one of those people that they recommended to stay in long-term treatment. Uh, their, their description of my condition was not clinically ready for discharge. In plain English, that translates to shouldn't be allowed out without a keeper. And gradually, one day at a time, I began to resume my position in the human race. Um, at the end of my drinking, I had lost my right-left-hand coordination. 
I couldn't count past 10 and retain the information. I had lost um, the sensation in the ends of my fingers. I was really not in very good shape. And, you know, gradually, one day at a time, I began to creep back to regaining my physical health, my mental stability, and I began to work on some kind of a spiritual program. Um, at this time, I was still married, and my husband was uh, was working a parallel course. I'm not here to tell his story, but I do have to touch on this a little bit because it affects me. I was very uncertain about whether um, we had a marriage left, and um, uh, and you know. I was allowed out on passes, but not, not for very long. And they're just, you know, we didn't have much time together until the following spring. And I, I came home on a fairly long pass the, in the spring of the year. I think it was um, March, maybe early April. And I noticed a whole bunch of daffodils blooming in the backyard that I didn't remember from before. And I said, are those daffodils new? And he said, well, yes. He said, I planted them last fall. I thought you would like them when you came home. And that was sort of my first clue that he really wanted me to come home. I don't know why he wanted me to come home, because as a wife, I had been a total bust. <laughs> and I hadn't even been any fun. I mean, I had been horrible to live with. Um, but he did want me to come home. I still don't quite understand why, but I'm grateful because while I was working my recovery program in AA, he was working a parallel recovery program in Al-Anon. And, you know, there was a period of time when we kind of went on parallel tracks. But we did join up, and, you know, we're, we've been, we will have been married 39 years this year. Um, my sobriety certainly does not depend upon my husband's activities. My, my sobriety depends upon my maintaining a spiritual condition one day at a time. But I don't think we would still be married if he hadn't taken up Al-Anon. In due course of time, I came home, and, you know, my, my household was chaotic, my husband is a wonderful man, but I'd been gone for 14 months, and nobody had been looking after the house. And I looked at it, and it was like moving into a 19-foot-tall wastebasket. And I, you know, I figured out something. I figured out how grown-ups do things. They, they do what they can do in one day. And so I didn't attack the house as a, as a whole thing. I sort of took one little unit of it at a time. You know, I clean a shelf and get a, a shelf tray. You know, I did it little bit by little bit by little bit. And of course, my husband had some things to do too. I think you know, I've been sober about four years, and he'd been working his Al-Anon program. And we were talking one day, and he, they, Al-Anon had just put out the blueprint for progress, which is the Al-Anon four-step guide. And he brought it home, and he was reading it to me. And he looked at me, and he says, "Thank God they didn't say anything about a filing cabinet in the doorway." because he'd had a filing cabinet left in one, in the door, one of the bedroom doorways for about a year. I said, yeah, it is good they didn't say anything about that. <laughs> 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 no, I'm 
moved. I didn't rag on him about it. I disagreed with him, and about a, two weeks later, he moved it. <laughs> you know, living with Kit is a trip. <laughs> and, you know, they, they taught me a lot in, in uh, extended care about assertiveness training, and when I got home, I discovered that a sense of humor was much more valuable than assertiveness training. <laughs> Well, anyway, we've been going along on our parallel paths now for <clears throat> 32 years, each of, almost 32 years, both of us, and we've had adventures, many adventures. Our first adventure was that he went overseas in 1976 on leave to be um, uh, at, a, at the University of Leeds in England, and I went with him. It was my first overseas trip. I was terrified because I had my support group. I had, you know, I had everything planned. This night, this, this night, this, this night. Very, very good. Alcoholic rigidity in action. <laughs> and I went to a meeting on Wednesday night. No matter what, Wednesday night was my meeting night. So we got to Leeds, and Wednesday night was the only night of the week when there was no AA meeting. At any rate, I asked about a step meeting, and they did have a step meeting, so I joined the step meeting, and after I'd been there one time, they made me the chair of the step meeting. And uh, that was very good for me. They were very, very kind to me. And while I was there, my husband was working, and if I was going to see anything of England, I had to do it myself. I had to get up and go, and that was good for me also. We did not have a telephone, because it cost, I think, maybe $1,000 down payment to get a telephone in your house. and you know, we were only going to be there for three months, so it just really wasn't worth it. So um, my, the first time I ever left to go on a trip, I was going by train, and I was standing on the train platform, and the train was coming, and I was standing there in a little suitcase, and I thought, what am I going to do if I get in trouble? I won't be able to call Kit. And then this profound thought came to me, well, you know, you better not get in trouble then. You're on your own. <laughs> so I stepped on the train and went. <laughs> and I went, and uh, no, I had had a number of trips around England all by myself, and, um, and I had a wonderful time. I met very interesting people. I saw wonderful things. And it was, it was just a great time for me to be in England. When I came back, I went back to my usual Wednesday night meeting. Oh, thank God. <laughs> And when I walked in the door, one of the men that I'd been seeing on, ever since I came, started coming to that AA group, uh, said, you know, Carolyn, I don't know what happened to you in England, but whatever it was, hang on to it, because it shows on your face it's good. Now, I don't know what your program is like. What my program is like is that I never know what's going on until afterward. You know, uh, I can look back and say, oh, and so as I look back, I, I see what happened to me in England. What happened to me in England was that I finally, truly completed the second step of Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to believe with a genuine personal faith of my own that the power of Alcoholics Anonymous was going to restore me to sanity. And, uh, and, you know, if anyone is in this room who is in that condition that I was when I first sobered up, which was I was following instructions, but I felt like I had stepped off a cliff. I could not see anything under my feet. You know, I wasn't crashing and burning on the rocks below, 
but it was like walking on air. I couldn't see what was under my feet. You know, it was so unnerving. And if there's anybody in that position, all I can say is just keep on keeping on. Use some of my faith until you develop one of your own. You're welcome to use mine. When I was seven years sober, I went to my first big book seminar, Joe and Charlie, and probably many people in this room. It was, a, it was really a revealing experience because, well, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not here to knock the treatment experience at Hazelden. In fact, my treatment experience at Hazelden was, was far better than many people's because my counselor in the extended care was basically, he just 12-stepped me. I mean, he just taught, took me through the steps. But there was a lot of emphasis in the treatment center about self-actualization. The, the current fad at that time was self-actualization. I think Judy mentioned that these things come down the pike. Um, at any rate, um, so, you know, uh, I, um, I was really not, I was never really quite certain what self-actualization was all about, but I had, sorry, that had been in, it had been told to me that that would be a good thing for me to think about. So anyway, I went to this big book seminar, and I started really seriously studying the big book in a different way. I'd been reading the big book all along. I was fully familiar with it. But I, 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 when I heard Joe and Charlie talk about it, it became a different book for me. You know, it changes. The big book does change. Every time you, know, every time you open the pages, they've changed it a little. Um, and, and all of a sudden, the, the power of the st third step prayer struck me and it dawned on me that if I really wanted to be relieved of the bondage of self it was probably counterproductive to be concerned about self-actualization so I set aside that concern and started praying seriously for relief from the bondage of self and I really don't know whether I'm actualized or not I don't give a damn <laughs> I can tell you that when I started praying seriously to be relieved of the bondage of self, things became different. Now, I have been sober for almost 32 years, and it is my observation that roughly every seven years, we change in our program. And that came, you know, that was a gift from the God of my understanding and my seventh year of sobriety. It really changed my program. It deepened my program, and it gave me a really different focus. And you know, people will come to me and they'll say, you know, it's not working. I'm not, it's not, I just don't feel right. How long have you been sober? 13 years, 15 years, whatever. I say, it's about time. It's about time for it to start feeling weird. You need to do something different in your sobriety. You have to keep enriching your sobriety in order for it to stay meaningful, in order for it to keep that priority you know because even when we're sober that thing about doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result you know we need to deepen and recharge our sobriety we need to change our direction we need to change our commitments you know whatever there's a there is a place in Alcoholics Anonymous for every kind of person of every ability to contribute. 
you know, one of the people in alcoholics whom I respect the most is a man who's been sober 52 years. He's always 20 years ahead of me. Isn't that awful? I can't gain on him. <laughs> and he says the most important 12-step activity we do for each other is to go to meetings. You know, if I were to go to my meeting and there weren't anybody there, my heart would break. I would, I would be desolate if the other people were not present at my meeting. So the most important thing we do for each other is to go to meetings. And look at this meeting. Look at this meeting. Look what we're doing for each other. I have come to believe that every AA meeting is an act of love. And I want to talk a little bit about my most recent, my life quite recently. Um, in 1999, I got into a snip. And it, was a, it had to do with events surrounding the 2000 International Convention, which was in uh, Minneapolis. And I just decided that I needed a break from AA. I should tell you that when I go into a snit, I always do something. And it may be great or it may be horrible, but I never go into a snit and sit still. Uh, I went into a snit in 1979 and started a women's meeting, which was the first women's meeting in the Twin Cities to offer child care. So there. <laughs> But in 1999, I went into a snit, and I decided that I really should take a look, that I should step back and decrease my involvement with Alcoholics Anonymous for a bit because I was really in a tailspin. And uh, so, uh, you know, the world is the world is wide open if you're an enthusiastic and gifted volunteer. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who want you. <laughs> So I selected AARP as being the next thing that I wanted to do. And uh, the first thing I did was I became an instructor in the AARP driver safety program, which many of you probably recognize under the name of 55 Alive. And that was fun, and I liked it. And then I was sitting next to a guy, and he said, well, you know, I don't do this, I don't instruct during the tax season, so I do taxes for AARP. And I said, what's that about? He said, well, you know, we, we, have the, we open these centers where we do taxes for the elderly and the indigent. I said, well, that was, sounds kind of fun. So I got qualified to do taxes. And I, do, I did taxes on the computer. I can't add and subtract by hand. Save my life. But what are computers for? Um, anyway, and I was very successful at doing income taxes on the computer. And I was just as happy as a clam. And, um, and then um, I was encouraged to become more active in the driver safety program, and I did, and I began to take on administrative responsibilities. And before I got turned around good, I was the state coordinator for Minnesota. Well, you know, if you're the state coordinator for some states, it's about well, maybe 10 hours a week. But Minnesota is, has the, is the most active state in the union as far as driver safety program is concerned. It, uh, it has the highest market penetration of any state, and there are 500 instructors. So it was a very big job. And then when I was um, invited to take it, they lied, frankly. <laughs> oh, you know, 20 hours a week. Well, 
it was a 40-hour-a-week job and no money, no money, <laughs> all for love. But I was, I was, <laughs> I was soldiering on. Um, and, you know, this, I, I, don't, I, did not, I did not retire from Alcoholics Anonymous. I just stepped back from service obligations for a while. And I was, continued to go to my meetings, continued to sponsor people and so forth. I mean, I was not divorcing Alcoholics Anonymous. But in the process of working in AARP, I began to work with people who are my age peers. You know, there are not that many older people who are really active in Alcoholics Anonymous. So most of the people that I interact with are younger. And interacting with my age peers was very interesting and very revealing. And I'm going to share an experience um, that resulted from that. I was obliged to resign that job because a year ago I began to lose the, light, the sight in one of my eyes. And I, of course, <laughs> rushed to the doctor and I received the diagnosis, which is kind of mixed. I mean, <laughs> the bad news is that the loss of eyesight in this one eye has been ameliorated considerably, although it's not completely restored. Um, the worst news is that once it starts to happen in one eye, it will usually happen in the other eye. So I may well be severely vision impaired in another 18 months, two years. Who knows? Who knows? It doesn't always happen, but it often happens. So I gave up my state coordinator job. And the last big workshop that I had was up in Bemidji. It was a beautiful workshop. It was a beautiful day. And I told them about this and one of the many you know, a lot of these people that work for in the AARP driver safety program are what Garrison Keeler calls Norwegian bachelor farmers. <laughs> you know, they're they're men of Scandinavian background. They are not communicative. They are not responsive. And, you know, I was turned loose with them and you know <laughs> I am what I am, and they are what they are. But they became very tolerant of me, and so I was. I, I shared the reason for my retirement at my at the last workshop, and this guy that I had never really talked to very much at, at all came up to me and said, "Well, you know, how can you talk about that so calmly? You know, why? How how can you accept that the way you have?" And I said, "Well, you know, it just." seems to me that if it's going to happen that way, it's obvious that the God of my understanding wants me to walk a different path. And he looked at me and he touched me on the shoulder. Now, this is a Scandinavian. He touched me on the shoulder and he said, and this just came out of him, he said, you know, my wife has Alzheimer's and she's almost gone. There is almost nobody home. But he said, when I take her for a ride on the Vespa, she laughs. And so he said, I strap her on the back of the Vespa and we ride around Moorhead, Minnesota as long as we can stay awake in the summertime when we can be out on that Vespa just so I can hear her laugh. And when he told me that, it was like God touched my heart. You know, alcoholics are not the only people who can love. This is such a deep and abiding kind of love. And this is what we are capable of as human beings. You know, 
a long time ago I read something about getting guidance and it said you know if you're if you're lost in the woods you can sight your way out on the North Star and you will never reach the North Star but you will get out of the woods so let's keep our eyes on the North Star thank you <laughs>